You're listening to Frankly Speaking, weekly primary care insights for your practice, brought to you by PrimeMed. Welcome. You're listening to PrimeMed's new podcast series, Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Domino. I'm a family physician at the University of Massachusetts Medical School here in Worcester, Massachusetts. The theme of each week will be focused on a primary care topic, and along with my guests, we'll discuss what's latest in the news, what late publications are out there that's changing your practice, and discuss practice guidelines. Joining me today is my colleague, Robert Baldor, who is Professor and Senior Vice Chair in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor of Baldor's Family Medicine Board Review. Welcome to the show, Bob. Hey, thanks, Frank. Pleasure to be here. Our topic for the, today is to discuss uh, management of asthma. In our earlier podcast, we discussed some of the issues about classification and pathophysiology of the disease. Today, we're going to focus much more on management. So, Bob, before we talk about which drugs to use and when to become very aggressive in care, can you tell me a bit about how we go about diagnosing asthma? Thanks, Frank. I think that's a good question. So, you know, we often see uh, uh, children uh, at a younger age uh, that don't have, so we think of asthma, by the way. So asthma is a disease of bronchospasm. You have inflammation in the airways, and so you get spasm in the airways. Uh, we have, you get air trapping. It's hard to get the air out, and so as you breathe to get the air out, you hear wheezing, and that's what causes the wheeze. So things, wow, think somebody's wheezing, they must have asthma. Well, there are other reasons for, for, for wheezing, and so really what you want to do, the other diagnostic criteria for asthma is that it's reversible bronchospasm, that there's a reversibility to it. So the best way to do that is to send somebody for pulmonary function tests, and the pulmonary function tests really need to um, include a, a component of, uh, of bronchochallenge, and methacholine is uh, most commonly used. So they'll you know, test the uh, ability to breathe, give somebody methacholine, see that you actually are causing bronchoconstriction, uh, see a decrease in your FEV1, give a reversal agent like a beta agonist, and see that it reverses and the FEV1 comes back to normal. So really uh, formal pulmonary function tests are what you need. Now one of the issues of course is we see a lot of children. And, um, and, and children often, uh, particularly the younger they are, are not necessarily wheezing. They may just be coughing uh, as, as part of it. And you cannot get children uh, at a young age to do pulmonary function tests. Actually, I don't know if you've ever had pulmonary function tests yourself. I went through this myself a couple of uh, years ago, and it's not an easy test to do, uh, to be able to comply with the testing and, and, and to go through with all of that. So it's not, not as simple as just doing a, a blood test. A lot of folks say, you know, you really can't diagnose asthma in a child less than four, that you can talk about uh, the fact that they wheeze or that they have some bronchospasm, but to label a child with asthma at a younger age is, is a little difficult until you've actually been able to, to do that formal, uh, those formal pulmonary function test with the uh, methacholine challenge. So with older children and adults, those are the folks you might want to consider for pulmonary function testing, and otherwise it sounds like it's a clinical diagnosis. No, I would say uh, you have your clinical suspicion, but you really should do the formal testing at least once on somebody to confirm that diagnosis. Uh, certainly if you have somebody later on in life who's having some wheezing, I mean, this could, it could be that they're coming down with uh, COPD, constructive 
uh, obstructive uh, pulmonary disease, uh, again, I always look at a lot of factors. Uh, are they a smoker or not? Uh, do they have underlying allergies? Uh, what's going on? And so uh, it's not, you know, uh, so I really think you need to be doing the, the pulmonary function testing. The other part of this is once you do confirm a diagnosis of asthma, uh, individuals should really have their own peak flow. And so part of this is to do their own peak flow testing to understand and appreciate what their uh, peak flow is, their best peak flow, because then that's part of management later on. When they come in, you should be doing test peak flow in the office. They can be doing it at home to sort of see, you know, what degree, what percent of their best are they. And that helps with, to uh, figure out what your therapy is and how compromised they are when they, when they come in. Okay. What, at what age do you think then we should be uh, trying to get a peak flow meter? Uh, in the past, we've said, you know, around 12 or 13. Do you think a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old could be able to comply with a pulmonary function test? Well, I guess, yeah, there's two pieces to your question. One, to be able to go through the formal pulmonary function test, uh, you know, you probably you are looking at, a, you know, a teen, you know, a 12, 13 to be able to do that. But I think for a peak flow meter, you can actually be younger than that. So peak flow meters, you know, that's just a handheld device. You're, you're just blowing into the thing. And uh, probably, you know, a child down six, eight can probably use those devices where they may not, they were not going to be able to uh, go through the whole formal testing, but they'll be able to use that device. Uh, it's kind of a fun thing for kids to do, you know, it's blow, there's a little, right, little lever that goes up to see how high up it can go. And, and, and these are often color coded with, you know, red, yellow, and uh, green. And uh, so it, uh, and I think probably, certainly by age eight, you should be fine with it. Okay, so it sounds like once once you've made the diagnosis of asthma, um, there's a fairly well-evidence-based set of guidelines around how we go about treating it. Can you take us through that, please? Yes, and so the uh, so uh, what we're really talking about here is making a determination whether people have right, uh, intermittent asthma where they have symptoms really less than a couple times uh, a week, or they have symptoms more than that. They're having symptoms using their rescue inhaler more than a couple times a week or, or waking up at night more than a couple times a month. That's persistent. And then within that, the classification is to say, okay, you've crossed that threshold from intermittent asthma where you're just prescribing and using a rescue inhaler, so that's an inhaled beta agonist, uh, albuterol, uh, to be using then persistent, we need to use a preventive therapy, that's an inhaled corticosteroid. And that really is the foundation of uh, treating individuals with persistent asthma. Now, as you go down that cascade from having mild to moderate to severe persistent asthma, you need to then think about adding on more agents. And so there's really a nice step therapy uh, that's broken out as to what you, would, uh, what you would add on. So again, you've got somebody with a baseline um, long act inhaled corticosteroid and they're still having symptoms that moves them up then saying you need to add more more treatment and there's a host of things that you can you can add at that point you could add a long-acting beta agonist you never want to prescribe a long-acting beta agonist with somebody who's not already on a long-acting corticosteroid uh, when these long-acting beta agonists came out we began using them they thought these were great agents to have for people with asthma turns out higher morbidity or mortality from folks that are just using uh, a long-acting beta agonist without the corticosteroid. So the reason for that is, is that even though the, what we're seeing here is the bronchospasm and the, uh, uh, and the wheezing and that the beta agonist will counteract the bronchospasm, it does nothing to the underlying 
pathophysiology that's causing this, and that's the inflammation. So people who are using long-acting beta agonists solely would then get into trouble on that while they were already maximally you know, uh, uh, bronchodilated. There's nothing more you could do, but they probably had maximal inflammation at that point. It was too late to attack the inflammation. So there's that piece of it. Okay, so step one, beta agonists, short acting. Step two, an inhaled corticosteroid. Step three, add on a long-acting beta agonist. What happens to those, those unfortunate folks who, who have really severe asthma and, and aren't well controlled with those three steps? Yeah, so uh, the other alternative for, for, um, uh, for step three though is actually rather than adding on a long-acting beta agonist is just increasing the dose of the inhaled corticosteroid. Mm -hmm. So you could go from a low, medium, or high dose uh, cortico, uh, corticosteroid. Step four though, it really then is a medium dose corticosteroid uh, inhaled corticosteroid with a long-acting beta agonist. They definitely need to be on that at, um, at, at that point. You could though, alternatives here are to use the uh, leukotriene receptor antagonist, um, you know, for people to use those. And I think as we get into some of this, it's trying to understand uh, the role of, um, of allergy and uh, whether people have had more problems with uh, al allergic triggers uh, for their asthma. They'll do better with these type of agents. Uh, as, uh, as, as, as part of it. People continue to get worse, you go along, uh, you, you use high dose uh, corticosteroids um, and really being, uh, thinking more about uh, your treatment. I will tell you though, when I have patients that aren't responding to this, I'm, this is when I refer to the pulmonologist. And uh, there, there's lots of different therapies that can be used in, uh, to, have the, to, to really get their expertise in, 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 involved. I also work a lot, though, on, we didn't talk about this, but what's going on for triggers. And uh, so having them uh, look at what's going on in their household, again, whether it's smoking, uh, whether there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, environmental allergens that are out there that are causing it, uh, uh, pets in the house, uh, uh, things like that, that one needs to be thinking about. Okay, that's terrific. When should we be thinking about nebulizers and, and, and what are the challenges with them and what are the solutions around those challenges? Well, great question. Actually, I saw two patients yesterday, interestingly enough, didn't come in for their asthma, but this came up. Uh, one patient wanted the nebulizer. She was convinced that the nebulizer is what she needed for her asthma and uh, her insurance wouldn't cover it. And I was saying, well, you know, um, you do okay with that handheld inhaler. Uh, why do you think you need a nebulizer? And, and, and for, for some people, you know, you have to be coordinated to use the inhaler. Uh, you know, you have to sort of breathe out and you have to breathe in and pump it at the same time and you want to inhale the medication. You don't want it just deposited on your oral pharynx. So people who struggle with that coordination, and you know me, Frank, I'm not the most coordinated person in the world. Thank goodness I don't have asthma or I wouldn't, you know, be squirting it all over the place. But uh, so those were the spacers come in. And I prescribe a lot of spacers. I do these for children all the time, have them use a spacer, but I do it for a lot of adults as well who are concerned about that. And so the spacers are great. It helps to decrease the need to be quite as coordinated with your pumping and your, and your, and your, and your, and your breathing. Then you get the nebulizers. Nebulizers are used a lot in children, uh, again, because of the coordination piece of it. I think nebulizers can be really helpful with people who are having an attack. And uh, because you're sitting there, you're actually breathing in the medication uh, over time. You know, it's a 10 or 15 minute therapy. And partly what's happened for a lot of patients, they come into my office, right, or your office, and they're having an, an exacerbation. What do we do? We don't say, use your inhaler. We go get our nebulizer. 
So they equate the nebulizer with being stronger, better therapy than the handheld pump. Quite frankly, it's not. Studies have shown that the handheld pump is just as effective as, 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 as the nebulizer. So, um, the, so I try and educate the patients about that, uh, give them a spacer, have them, uh, have them use that. And for somebody, though, who has pretty severe asthma uh, and having lots of exacerbations, they do seem to do better, you know, even though the data doesn't necessarily show that. I think it's probably anxiety is a piece of this. Interestingly, I have one of my patients comes in, along with giving her a nebulizer, I give her a little benzodiazepine at the same time because she gets so anxious with her breathing, it makes it worse uh, as, uh, as part of this. Um, so again, asthma, you know, with it's bronchospasm, the problem is getting air out. It's not getting air in so much. So using the inhaler, you're breathing in. You're breathing the medication in, and that shouldn't necessarily be that big a barrier for them. I, 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 I totally agree. There, there's great systematic review data showing that spacers or holding chambers are as effective at controlling asthma symptoms and preventing adverse outcomes than, than nebulizers with far less morbidity. As you know, if you've ever seen anyone uh, who's used a beta agonist delivered by a, by a nebulizer, they can often become quite jittery, have some nausea, and in children, vomiting. And that is totally eliminated with the use of the holding chambers. All right, so you've, you've, um, you've got your patient, you've, you've, you're, you're treating them, they're having their acute exacerbation. When should they be going home on what medicines? In particular, who needs an antibiotic and who doesn't? Yeah, so uh, before answering that particular, I, I do want to say that uh, underlying asthma is inflammation. And so this is the role for oral or systemic corticosteroids. Somebody coming with an acute exacerbation, I'm going to put them on an oral corticosteroids. And, you know, it turns out how long do they need to be on these? Probably three days is sufficient. We're seeing more data out there saying we don't need to be doing longer courses. We don't need to be tapering people on uh, on the corticosteroids. Uh, three, th you know, I'm, I'm feeling... The data probably shows that three days is okay. I'm feeling uncomfortable with that myself, so I use five days. But three to five days are, are really okay. You mentioned antibiotics, and uh, the uh, obviously we know there's a problem in this country with overprescribing antibiotics for respiratory issues. Most respiratory infections are viral in nature that we're seeing in primary care, and uh, antibiotics aren't going to help them. So there's been some question, though, as to, hmm, are infections triggering asthma? Um, should we be thinking about antibiotics for that? And, and some of this actually came out of a, a, a study that was done here a couple of years ago looking at macrolides, and this was the telecast study. And uh, it did show that uh, individuals who were being treated with um, uh, the, uh, in, in telecast, they used uh, teleothromycin. And the trouble is it's really limited to be able to use because they had a lot of problems with uh, uh, adverse reactions and liver toxicity. And so, you know, you say, well, why would, um, so obviously there's the idea that you're using uh, this macrolide here to treat some common respiratory uh, pathogens, that would make sense. Uh, but also, apparently macrolides have some sort of an anti-inflammatory effect. So this study was followed up. This was just published here. The Azalea study came out where they looked at a risk. They actually did a randomized clinical control trial using azithromycin uh, here. And, and again, this was just published in JAMA last month, um, the, in November here, 2016, saying, let's go ahead and put people on azithromycin who came in with an acute asthma attack. Now, key to this is all of the patients that came in were also on a corticosteroid as well. They found no difference 
and in and benefit on those treated with azithromycin versus those that weren't uh, that weren't treated. And really saying this really leads to uh, to more evidence of not having any benefit to just randomly putting people on this. However, um, the they did testing though in these studies to look at and say, well, do people have agents that would respond to an antibiotic? And in, and in this study, uh, five percent of them, only five percent though. Uh, did uh, test positive for, for, for chlamydia, uh, mycoplasm, uh, and, and so on. And so, you know, there's a little bit of this that says, gee, uh, I think we're going to continue to see an evolution around more point-of-care testing for people coming into the office, whether it's asthma or other respiratory infections, to sort of say, hmm, do we know that this is a bacterial agent or not? And there, uh, and there may be a role for an antibiotic in, you know, in this case, you know, less than 5% of those coming in with acute exacerbation. So my practice, it still leads me to sort of say, I don't have those point of care testing now. Do I think that there's a bacterial process underlying this that, that's part of this? You know, clinical judgment's really poor on this, uh, but still somebody coming in and, uh, you know, you, you're trying to tease this out. I think the bottom line is, is antibiotics aren't helpful. What's helpful? Corticosteroids and using, trying to attack that, uh, that, that inflammation. And like most things, you do want to follow the patient. Patients not responding, getting worse, then maybe there's a role for the antibiotic as an add-on therapy in that acute situation. But it shouldn't be just done up front. You're not going to be helping most. 95% of your patients are just going to have no benefit from that, and will just have the adverse effects of the uh, uh, side effects potentially from using the uh, antibiotic agents. So thanks, Bob. To recap today's session, uh, use a, a stepped approach when you have a patient with known asthma based upon their degree of severity and uh, add agents on uh, in an appropriate fashion. When someone has an acute exacerbation, treat the underlying cause, which is that inflammation with oral corticosteroids. Uh, the dose typically for prednisolone is one to two milligrams per kilogram for both adults and children. And guidelines say anywhere from three to seven days of therapy without tapering is adequate. There has long been used, based upon clinical judgment, uh, antibiotics, but there's increasing data that shows the need for antibiotics is probably very, very limited, and that's going to evolve over time. I want to thank you, Bob, for coming in today and talking about asthma. This is Frank Domino uh, for Frankly Speaking.